Hello, this is Pastor Nick Hood. I want to uh, share with you today uh, some thoughts on the concept of reparations uh, and based on Ezra chapter 1. Uh, and I, I call this, I actually preached a sermon on this Sunday, so this is kind of a condensed version of the sermon. But uh, the sermon title was Reparations, a Spicy Chicken Sandwich, and the Providence of God. The text from Ezra chapter 1 in the fourth verse, in my mind, is one of many examples from the Bible that talks about reparations. And it reads, And let all survivors in whatever place they reside be assisted by the people of their place with silver and gold, with goods and with animals, beside free will offerings for the house of God in Jerusalem. In our scripture, uh, Ezra details a process for reparations after the Babylonian exile. Some 80,000 Jews were carried away to Babylon in exile. In 439 BC, Cyrus of Persia liberated the Jews, allowed them to return to Israel, and gave them silver and gold that was plundered in the exile. In other words, reparations. Not everyone was happy with the return of the Jews. In like manner, not everyone is happy with the concept of reparations for descendants of enslavement, including some black people in America. I am a descendant of Africans. I am a descendant of Africans who were enslaved in America. My great-grandfather on my father's side of the family was William Hood, a slave owner in Kentucky, brother of Colonel John Bell Hood of the Confederate Army. The question often comes up, what would happen if reparations were paid to the descendants of slavery? One fellow asked me to look at the long line of cars during the pandemic that wait in the drive through in Detroit, Michigan for the spicy chicken sandwich at Popeye's Chicken and the long lines at McDonald's and Wendy's uh, drive throughs uh, give him, and, and he asked me to give him my opinion, if every American, uh, well really I asked him, if every American was given one million dollars, every African American was given one how would people respond? And his response was, look at people lining up for the chicken sandwiches right now. Would they even know what to do with a million dollars? And I beg to differ with that opinion. I shared with him an observation from my missionary travels to Ethiopia with Dr. Ingeta Asfaw and Dr. Elizabeth Asfaw and their group, the Ethiopian North American Health Professions Association. I invite you to Google them. It's tremendous work that they're doing. They take usually two trips a year, two mission trips a year, one in the spring, one in the fall, and they take doctors there. <laughs> medical procedures and so forth and then they leave a lot of the equipment there uh, but for me each trip began in Addis Ababa with members of my church uh, and the first trip for me was in 2005 I have made four trips to Ethiopia and the last trip was in 2012 one of the things I noticed on each trip was how the more the economy has improved, the more I noticed that the number of paved roads, trucks, restaurants, hotels, and resorts were opening. Uh, I thought about 
a man named Seifu. I don't know his last name, but Seifu is Ethiopian. He owns quite a uh, Ethiopian restaurant in the Detroit area, technically Ferndale, Michigan, called the Blue Nile Restaurant. And I've become friends with Seifu. Uh, I've even traveled with him at least once, maybe twice, to Ethiopia. And I asked Seifu about, um, you know, his thoughts about the development that's happening there, particularly from the capital city, Addis Ababa, going south to Debrezet, uh, which is an Ethiopian pronunciation for the biblical word and name Deborah, and then the city even further south called Awasa, which is where the Asfals, Dr. and Dr. Asfal, have built a maternal child center. And I asked him, I said, what do you think about that? And he said, well, Reverend Dick, he said, you know, he said, uh, development is coming to that area. And before it was developed, people could only afford to eat one meal a day. He said, but as people get more money in their pocket, then gradually they, they progress from one meal a day to two meals a day. And then when they get a little more money in their pocket, they advanced to three meals a day. And he said in all of the accompanying things that come along with it. And that's what I told a fellow in Detroit, you know, about the spicy chicken sandwich. I say, you're worried about a spicy chicken sandwich and a million dollars. I said, I believe that even a poor person, if given a million dollars, would figure out what to do with it. America has a history of reparations for it, for many groups except the descendants of slaves. After killing Native Americans, the country set aside a network of reservations. In 1946, Congress created the Indian Claims Commission, a body designed to hear historic grievances and compensate tribes for lost territories. It commissioned extensive historical research and ended up awarding about $1.3 billion to 176 tribes and bands of Indians. The Hawaiian Homes Commission Act of 1920 established a land trust for Native Hawaiians and allowed people of one half Hawaiian ancestry by blood to lease homesteads from the federal government for 99 years at a time for a total of $1. In 1973, for example, the United States began an attempt at reconcili reconciliation for the Tuskegee experiments, in which 600 black men were unknowingly left untreated for syphilis after being misled by officials who involuntarily enrolled them in a treatment program. In Florida, where lawmakers passed a bill that paid $2.1 million in reparations to survivors of the Rosewood Massacre, a 1923 incident in which a majority black Florida town was destroyed by racist, racist mobs. And then we have Chicago, Illinois, which created a $5.5 million reparations fund for survivors of police brutality aimed at black men during the 1970s and 1980s. After World War II, 80,000 Japanese who were detained were given $20,000 each under the Civil Liberties Act of 1988. But for African Americans, General Sherman promised reparations after the Civil War, 40 acres and a mule, 
but then he withdrew the offer, which has never been fulfilled. And so uh, I want you to think about this question of reparations. You know, where do you land on the side of reparations? I heard a tremendous uh, interview this past week from uh, a woman, uh, Hannah Jones. What was her first name? And I'll uh, think of it in a minute. But Miss Hannah Jones, uh, you know, is the author of the 1619 uh, insert in the New York Times. She's a writer for the New York Times. And she made just a tremendous argument for reparations. She said, you know, not only was enslavement bad, but to add insult to injury, when enslavement was ended, African Americans were prohibited from taking advantage of government programs that everybody else in America could take advantage of, uh, you know, to purchase homes, uh, to get education, and uh, to buy land and, uh, you know, the, the funding for farms. Uh, systemically, African-American descendants of slavery have been prohibited from this. And so her point is that uh, Nora is her first name, Nora Hannah Jones. Her point is that people say, well, how much will it cost and how do we figure out uh, how to make it fair. And her point, I thought, was beautifully stated. She said, look, if America can figure out how to put a person on the moon and fly into space and come back home safely, surely we can figure out how to redress uh, slavery through reparations. Uh, some of the estimates I've you know, read range as high as $64 trillion in mass. Uh, to pay a reparation equal in today's dollars for 40 acres and a mule to the descendants of African slaves. Uh, but I encourage you, uh, as I encourage my congregation, I say, number one, I think we're getting closer to the day when reparations will be a re reality. Number, uh, number two, you ought to do a DNA search to make sure you can prove you are a descendant of slaves. And three, you ought to talk to your family members, the oldest family members that you have, check your family records and find out who uh, has the connection to slavery. Where is the connection to slavery? As I tell you, you know, I was so proud. My son, uh, Noah, went back through our family records and found out that uh, I am indeed, and he too, but my great-great-grandfather was a man named William Hood, who is the full brother of John Bell Hood, the youngest Confederate, Confederate Army general from Kentucky. And uh, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, Nicholas Hood I, is actually listed in two census tracts uh, with William, uh, William Hood as his father. Now, that may seem, you know, just a little bit of uh, whatever to you right now, but one day that will be important. You know, reparations may not come in my lifetime, but I believe uh, at some point it will come. And when it comes, one of the questions is gonna be, can you prove you are of African descent and African-American slavery descent? I'd like to uh, pose some questions and then offer a prayer. Number one, what are your thoughts about reparations? Two. Do you see a connection between reparations in the Bible and reparations in America and around the world? Three, do you think 
the Christian has a responsibility to provide reparations. And number four, what other thoughts do you have on this concept? I'd like to close us now with a prayer. Lord, make me honest and compassionate. In my integrity, teach me to address my wrongs. In my compassion, teach me to feel for the suffering of others, even those in my ancestry, ethnic and racial heritage. Keep, help me to keep others honest, to acknowledge the wrongs of the past, but also the opportunities for racial harmony and national prosperity.